0: Welcome to 1514, a podcast of the Biblical Counseling Coalition. 1514 draws its name from Romans 15, 14, where the Apostle Paul encourages the church that they are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to counsel one another. I'm your host and the Executive Director of the BCC, Dr. Curtis Solomon, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. for joining us for this episode of 1514. It is a delight to have you as part of our audience for this episode. I want to say thank you for those who prayed for and participated in our Building Bridges campaign at the end of 2021. Through that campaign, we were able to add almost $1,200 in monthly recurring gifts that really helps establish and build the foundation of recurring donations that we rely on to continue to do our mission of building unity in the biblical counseling movement. We also had a lot of individual gifts that came at the year end and really the Lord blessed us and set us up well to launch into 2022. So thank you so much for those who participated in that. I also want to say thank you to those who are praying for my family and I. Uh, We had the flu and then COVID roll through our house the first three weeks of January. So we were out, uh, just kind of locked down in our home for a while. Uh, We survived, we didn't go crazy and we're all on the rebound and doing healthy now. So thanks so much for that. Uh, We rebroadcasted a couple of our popular episodes Shows the last couple of weeks because I wasn't able to record, but I'm back in the saddle and able to record. And delighted today to share with you a conversation that I had with Deepak Reju. Uh, many of you know D through his writing ministry. Uh, he's a member of the board of directors of the Biblical Counseling Coalition. And I had a wonderful time catching up with him today, hearing more about his upbringing, his background, how the Lord saved him, brought him into ministry, and lessons he's learned through biblical counseling. It's really encouraging for me and I hope that it is an encouragement for you and I hope that you come back next week to hear our next episode thanks so much again all right well thank you everybody for joining us for today's episode today I have with me a guest that many of you are familiar with through his writing and we're just going to take some time to get to know him a little bit better so I'm going to start by making him pronounce his name for us also Dee would you mind introducing yourself to our audience including sharing with us the correct pronunciation of your name Deepak Reju. That's who I am. That's apparently how I pronounce it. Though if I were Indian, I'd have a
1: heavy accent like Deepak Reju, something like that. Um, I'm a pastor in Washington, D.C. at Capitol Baptist Church for the last 15 years, though I've been a part of the church since 1991. So I've been around the church for about 30 years. Uh, I, I serve on staff with primary roles related to counseling and family ministry and we live literally across the street from the church so uh, most of our staff live within a block and a half of the church building as we try and live in the community married to sarah uh, we got married here at the church in 2001 Uh, so we've been married just celebrated our 20th anniversary we have five kids zach lydia eden noel and abe ages 17 down to eight and we're looking forward to helping our son launch our first child this summer, heading to college, so we're excited about that.
0: That is exciting. That is exciting. Yeah, it's a unique setup that you guys have there at Capitol Hill. Not to mention being across the street, you're just down the road from the Supreme Court too. So, which is pretty pretty interesting uh, context to work and live in. So, tell us, Dee, where did you where did you grow up, and what was your childhood like?
1: I grew up in uh, middle to northern New Jersey. So, my my parents. Immigrated with the brain thrust, as they often call it, in 69 to 70, uh, the immigration laws liberalized and a lot of uh, immigrants uh, who were professionals came over to the states. Um, So my dad did that. I was born first child in our family, and he decided if he was going to make his run towards the American dream, he would do it then. And so he came over right after I was born, uh, got a job and a place, and then my mom and I followed so I've been raised in the States, uh, all my life, uh, grew up, uh, then, then he got a job. And as, as, as typical, a lot of the immigrants that came at that time settled in ethnic communities. So I grew up in a small Indian community. Um, and as they all got jobs and, and, and progressed in their careers, they moved to different parts of the country. So we settled in, in New Jersey, in the same town that I grew up in my all, all my life. Um, My parents settled there because of the education typical for a third world family, uh, education was a high priority. And I grew up in the same school system, you know, uh, did Legos and played soccer and went to youth group. And, uh, um, but, but we, we were a nominal Christian family, uh, and didn't go to church as a family really pretty much at all. Um, and uh, and so therefore, like I, I don't have memories like a lot of people I know having grown up in church, uh, ha- having gone to church with your parents, having done family devotions. That's just not a part of my past.
0: Yeah, where where was your family from in India before they moved to Jersey? Uh, Kerala, the southernmost
1: state in India, right above Sri Lanka. So my my mom was more um, her her parents got actually educations from University of Massachusetts at the turn of the century, came back. And interestingly, they were phys ed teachers for the princes and princesses of the southern kingdoms before India became independent. So my, my grandfather would tell me stories of what it's like to work for real royalty, like real kings um, and, and that kind of thing. And then my my dad came from more poor farm country, more rural. And both of them did well educationally, uh, arranged marriage as is typical in Indian culture. Um, and then I was born and they came to the States.
0: Wow, that's incredible. Did you ever ever been back to in, visit family back there? Yeah,
1: uh, actually growing up, we would spend a lot of summers there. In fact, my parents would take us, they would take their two to three weeks generic vacation time, but then they would leave us with grandparents for much of the summer. So I spent a lot of summers growing up with grandparents, going back and forth, fond memories of being there, being with relatives. Uh, in fact, I'm reading to my eight-year-old volumes of Tintin, the adventures of Tintin that I bought when I was in junior high and high school, elementary, junior high, uh, when I was growing up um, spending summers in India. Um, So my oldest son found the box that I had stored it in and I read it with him when he was a little kid and it's just passed down to our kids. And now I'm reading it with our youngest kid.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. My boys somehow, I think from an old church friend got introduced to Tintin and have the whole set of comics. It's a really, yeah, uh, that's a fascinating, I'm sure there was a little nostalgic for you when he pulled them out and started (laughs) having you go over those. What were you, you mentioned Legos and soccer and stuff like that. Any other interests or what, what made you tick when you were a teenager and a a young kid?
1: Yeah. You know, I'm a, I'm an off the charts extrovert. So my life revolved around relationships and friends. So I had I had a number of different friendships throughout the years, but I had a couple of close friends. You know, I wasn't in the popular crowd um, and I wasn't in the athletic crowd. Um, I was in a group of kids who had done well academically, but also liked to be athletic. Um, so we kind of find our own little niche of guys who spent a lot of time with through high school, uh, same group of about five, five or so guys that I spent a lot of time with and, um, and everything from, you know, my best friend and I formed a billiards club and we played a lot of pool in his basement to a couple of years of playing Dungeons and Dragons and having all night tournaments in my basement where we would have <laughs> five to 10 guys playing a Dungeons and Dragons adventure, like from uh, 8 p.m. till like three in the morning to Atari video games first coming out, uh, being on the front end of that and playing that in high school, like being up playing these really cool video games until two in the morning with my friends on Friday or Saturday night. Um, so I, that's my memories of growing up. Uh, I didn't read that much. I just spent a lot of time with people.
0: Oh, that's fun. So really cool games like Pong and, Pac-Man and <laughs> Exactly exactly <laughs> yeah, right. That's really cool games back then. Well that's that's pretty wild. So and you didn't even turn into a sorcerer or wizard or anything like that with all that D&D background. So praise praise the Lord for his grace. Uh, speaking of, you you described your church upbringing as a child as a kind of a nominal uh, faith, but how did you become a believer? What what led you to saving faith in Christ?
1: Yeah, interesting. There was one piece of the story that I didn't have until a few years ago when my mom My dear mother, who's um, was a part of our church and now joined one of our church plants, uh, but has regularly has dinner with us and is over at our home a lot. She shared with me one night that um, she first started taking us to a local gospel preaching church because we were attending a nominal Syrian Orthodox church, which is the religious background that my parents had. Um, They would attend just two or three times a year. They drive into New York City from New Jersey And attend these services, which are just Syrian orthodox with a lot of other Indians. And the priest said to her, your kids need more than just this a couple of times a year. So find a church in your community. So she didn't know. She drove to the closest church, literally to our home, which turned out to be a faithful gospel preaching church. Um, An OPC, if people know what that is, Orthodox Presbyterian, faithful, reformed um, believer, small church in a suburban community she would literally just drop us off for Sunday school and then pick us up afterwards for weeks. Uh, and you fast forward, uh, my sister gets converted in high school and I get converted in high school. So my non-Christian father referred to us at one point as Jesus freaks. Uh, he, he had no idea what had happened underneath the roof of his own home, how both of us had come become believers. Um, and I was fairly immature in my faith and really grew a lot in college. Um, But I was converted late in high school through the ministry of uh, a man named Gary Metzger, who was a single man who chose to stay in a very small church with no singles and minister to the, uh, the teenagers in that church. And so I'm one among many of that generation that are a result of the fruit of his work of getting invested in people's lives. And I was never close to my father. We had a, he was workaholic, not very involved in my life. So Gary was really my spiritual father. It was through conversations with him. It was spending time with him. So we drove, we would drive from central New, central to Northern New Jersey to Shea stadium in New York to watch Mets games. And cause Shea stadium is really a dump. We would, uh, we'd go to veterans stadium in Philly instead whenever the Mets were down playing the, the Phillies and now, you know, that was a long hike down to veteran stadium, but that's a lot of time to talk through life together. And I've got a lot of memories of having conversations and being shaped by those conversations with Gary.
0: Hmm, that's really incredible. So what, when, <clears throat> do you remember a particular conversation or time or something where God just opened your eyes to needing the gospel or was it just kind of through the, through Gary's loving on you like Jesus?
1: Yeah. I don't, I don't have a, I know, you know part of my job is I do membership interviews for prospective members. I hear their testimonies all the time and I love it when somebody has a day, a time, and even a moment um, where they can narrow it down and say, I know the Lord opened up my eyes at that point. I don't have that moment. I I have, I know I was not a Christian at the start of high school. I think I was, I think it was pretty likely I was a Christian by the time I started college. And if not or early, early in college, I pretty click came to faith, saving faith sometime. But I'm, I'm pretty sure it's under Gary's ministry in those years that uh, there are choices that I started making towards the end of high school that just wouldn't make sense unless you had some supernatural working in your life.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Well, praise the Lord for that. And the beauty of it is God's outside of time. So he had you chosen yeah, before right. the foundations of the world, whether, <laughs> whether it was exactly. high school or college. So praise the Lord. That's a wonderful testimony though of, 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 a person's influence on a lot of young people just by loving them, spending time with them. So you, when you went to college, where did you go and what were you actually going there to study?
1: I went to George Washington university in Washington, DC. That's what brought me to DC uh, many, many years ago, 1987, to do undergraduate work, a major in biology, minor in psychology. Cause my Asian American father said you can either be a doctor or an engineer. That's what we do. Um, he was an accountant, by the way. So I don't know why I only had those two <laughs> choices. But that's that's what he said. So I thought, okay, I'll be a doctor. I entered in as pre-med, um, did really well. I mean, and got accepted into medical school. So I I majored, um majored in in biology only because I was really intimidated by physics. And I like chemistry, but I didn't know I just didn't know what I would do. So I little did I know that the department was full of botanists. And my, my, my final year, I'd be studying trees and leaves. And I hated that. I hated it. Can I say it again? I hated it. But, um, but I got through, (laughs) I I finished the degree, Uh, but what was really important is spiritually the Lord's kindness. I was in a freshman dorm called Thurston hall with a thousand freshmen. Um, I was on the sixth floor and the only Bible study in the entire dorm turned out to be right across the hallway. The Lord providentially brought two young ladies who were converted in high school and were from the same high school, decided to go to GW together, become roommates, uh, Alyssa and Suzanne. And uh, the university chapter, they asked if they could do the Bible study in their room. And, uh, and so like, it felt like the Lord just dropped that right in my lap. I started going to Bible study across the hallway That brought me into getting a ride to church every Sunday and brought me into a fellowship with a number of believers, including Edwin Weaver was a senior. He was leading that Bible study and halfway through the year, he said to me, Hey, you're going to go to the Abraña missions conference with me over Christmas. Other than the naive freshman, I was like, okay, where do I sign up? Uh, So I did that. And that was, that was striking. I mean, I heard Ajith Fernando Preach on Jonah, uh, George Ver, I preach on Operation Mobilization. I just all kinds of things I still remember from that conference. But then he said right after it, it's like, you need discipling. So you're going to meet me every Friday for one on one Bible study in the student center, the one, the, really the one day I had to sleep in, no classes in the morning. But I got up early and met him every Friday. I only missed one Friday the whole semester. And I felt real guilty for missing that one Friday. Um, but that, that was transformative because that was the second time somebody stepped into my life and said, I'm going to individually pour into you, um, uh, and help you understand the scriptures. And so we did one, that's the first time I did one-on-one discipling with someone who opened up the scriptures just with me, with Gary, it was with the Bible study with all a bunch of high schoolers with Edwin. It was just me and him across the table in the student center studying the scriptures together. And that was really good for me.
0: Yeah, no, that's incredible. So you guys had you guys had a coed dorm. I'm assuming that if there's two girls doing a Bible study yeah, across the hall, yeah. <clears throat> very different. A thousand people in coed is very different than a lot of <laughs> probably a lot of our Christian school uh, listeners oh, yeah. did uh, experience. So when when did um so did you go? Did you end up going to medical school? I did. I did the first half of medical school. Um, I, I ended
1: up going to medical school at George Washington. And I mean, the long story short is I essentially had been resisting what had been people telling me I need to go into ministry. I just laughed it off because I was type a goal oriented, clearly directed to med school from the beginning. I got in, had a full scholarship. There's no way I was turning around, but the pastor I grew up under told me my senior year of college, I should go into ministry. And I laughed it off. A year later, um, Matt Schmucker, who's the head of, um, uh, who runs go- uh, T4G um, and uh, a number of other things, gospel projects. He, he also told me, um, you need to go to um, seminary, not go back to med school. And I laughed it off again. But the Lord stopped me in my tracks halfway through. I actually burned out halfway through med school. And the Lord used that to force me to reevaluate my whole life. And so rather than going back, I just made what was probably one of the hardest decisions of my life. I, I basically committed to Lord, like, I'm just going to, I'm going to turn my back on this. Cause I think what you really want me to do is head into ministry. Uh, I don't know how this is going to work out, but it seems like you're kind of pulling it out from underneath me and grabbing my attention. Um, so, you know, it's like all of my life fell apart. I mean, I could put, Turned my back on the thing that I thought I was supposed to be doing with my life. You know, I lost scholarship because I turned my back on it. I, you know, I had, had been going through a burnout. I I'd, I'd even seen a psychiatrist during that to figure out what's going on. And even the psychiatrist said later, it's like, it's like suddenly you completely turned like everything just, it just flipped over. And what it was is I made a decision by faith to just go ahead and give my life over and trust that whatever path the Lord has for me, I'm just going to take it and if that means I need to walk away from med school, then I'm gonna do that and just be open to what the Lord's gonna do um and just I mean the burnout left, the depression left like it was I had no reluctance to walk away from med school i mean and I just had a clear path though so it was an awkward year because I had to move home and I worked at a i worked uh, delivery at a drugstore and waited tables just to kind of get my life realigned. Uh, and my father, who's not a believer, thought I was crazy. He just, he could not understand in a worldly sense, why I would walk away from all that. Uh, uh, so we had a hard year in our relationship, but the Lord opened up the doorways. Uh, it opened up. I mean, I looked at a lot of seminaries and I remember at a payphone after I'd finished delivering delivery for the drugstore calling Mark Dever and saying all these seminaries are Presbyterian and I'm Baptist what do I do uh and he said it's early in his tenure but you need to go look at Southern Seminary and this was 1995 two years after Dr. Moeller had arrived and the school had not completely turned um, so I said, okay, I mean, I trust you. So uh there I was from a payphone in New Jersey calling Mark Dever in Washington, DC, and him telling me, go look at Southern, give it a try. So I went on a, a preview weekend and Greg Thornberry, who's the president of King's College for a number of years, was Dr. Mueller's personal assistant at that point. He was a PhD student. He took me out for breakfast the last day, pitched me the vision for where they're headed. And I bought it, hook, line, and sinker. I, I knew right there it was like, okay, I'm going to go to Southern. We're going to do it. Um, and I landed on the shores of Southern Seminary in 1996 in a very different time yeah. uh, than uh, than what it is currently. Yeah, no,
0: no, no doubt it was <laughs> different back then. So back up a little bit because I'm curious how you went from this nominal Syrian Orthodox Church to a Presbyterian Orthodox, you know, OPC church to Capital B Baptist Capitol Hill Baptist Church in in DC. What? How did you land there? Yeah, you're asking to my Baptistic conversion. <laughs> uh, but, For yes, all of our non Baptist I mean, friends out there, we we know you love Jesus, and we're we're all part of the family. But, yeah. Yeah, I mean the the, the simple version of that is that while I was at GW,
1: I was attending um, a non denominational uh, evangelical church that a lot of other friends were attending. In fact, at that point, I was teaching Sunday school, elementary kids while I was, a uh, um, a, a, I think it was a, a, a senior in college and I'm teaching, um, Sunday school at this church. And I mean, it was all going just fine, but the next year, one of my, uh, one of my closest friends who in fact is still at the church, um, her father was a Southern Baptist pastor um, and she asked him as she arrived at GW, where should she go to church? And he recommended Capitol Hill. Uh, granted, this is, this is, um, this is before Mark was here. Uh, and, uh, he's been here for 27, 28 years. This is, uh, I arrived a couple of years before he got here and she, uh, it was under the previous pastor who was a good expositional preacher. So she started attending and basically our college fellowship group at GW all one by one started drifting over with her. Uh, we heard about the preaching, wanted to check out the church. So I did too. I just joined the crowd. I went over, checked it out. And what I didn't understand at that point is under that sweet OPC church where I got converted by Gary, I, uh, in high school, I heard expositional preaching. I didn't, I didn't have a name for it then. I just knew they opened up the Bible and explained the scriptures. I knew that's what I got every Sunday. And that's what I got at Capitol Hill. It's a church uh, that the previous pastor, he opened up the Bible and explained the scriptures. And for whatever, for whatever reason, I knew I had an affinity for that because that's what I grew up with in high school. So I stuck around um, the church and ended up, you know, getting to know the pastor. And then the pastor gave me stuff on baptism, read the baptism material, felt convicted by it, and therefore got baptized at Capitol Hill in 1991. Um, and has been have been Baptist ever since then, um, both being a member of Capitol Hill Baptist and then heading to Southern Baptist Seminary and joining a Southern Baptist church while we were there at Clifton Baptist in my years there, um, and then coming back here on staff. So I've been a part of the SBC since I first joined Capitol Baptist.
0: Wow. Uh, so you go, you, 96, you land at Southern. Were you planning to study biblical counseling at that point, or what was your focus as in your MDiv?
1: Yeah, no, I my, my I had an interest in counseling. In fact, I met a few of the uh, integrationists in the department, as it was all integrationists at that point uh, within the department. Um, but, you know, uh, Greg Wills, who's now at Southwestern, was uh, was there. He was one of the early professors to arrive with Dr. Moeller. And he took me out to breakfast, and his advice still sticks with me. He said, you know, if you're going to specialize, you could do that. But because I was brand new to Christian education, had never had any of it um, before in my entire life. And so he said, go for the general MDiv and get as many as much languages and theology as you can. Uh, that will prepare you the best for pastoral ministry. So that's what I did. I just went for the the most generic MDiv. And in fact, I so loved systematic theology Cause I took systematic one and two with Dr. Moeller my first year. I just loved it. I mean, I, 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 I ate it up and um, Brutum was almost a brand new systematic theology at that point. Cause we're talking 95. So I read it cover to cover and, and, and loved it. Um, and so uh, I took as much systematic theology as I could while I was there in my MDiv. Um, I took all the extra space I had and loaded up on, Extra theology classes plus languages. Um, just knowing that, I uh, the one thing I do know is I want to head into probably pastoral ministry or be prepared for ministry, and that seemed the best degree at that point.
0: But a little side note: our podcast engineer who will edit this and post it online is, is Greg Will's son, James. So. Small sure. world. Yeah, small world. <laughs> so uh, a couple things intersect your path at some point. One is Sarah, and then the other is biblical counseling. So which one came first?
1: Uh, well, so I was um, I was at Capital. So I finished my MDiv, ninety six to ninety nine. CHBC calls up and says, "Hey, would you come back and rejoin the staff as Mark's personal assistant?" Um, because his personal assistant wanted to switch places, Aaron Menikoff who's at Mount Vernon Baptist right now, Uh, Aaron Aaron was Mark's personal assistant and wanted to head to seminary to now get his MDiv. And so we swapped places. I finished my MDiv and came back and took Aaron's job. And Aaron then trained me for a month and then drove out with his wife, Tina to Southern seminary and started his MDiv degree and joined third Avenue uh, at that point. And so I came back and it was in that year that at being under Mark's shadow, uh, that he said to me halfway through the year, I think your gifts are in council. And, and so that's the first time somebody spoke that deliberately into my life about specifically those gifts. And then it turns out Matt Schmucker, who I'd mentioned earlier, who was a really good friend, um, had said to me, uh, around the same time, I still don't know if these guys scheme this day or not, but in a totally separate conversation, Matt said something very similar. He said, you know, you've got, you can use a lot of of your different gifts, but it does seem like your gifts are mostly in this, especially in this area. And so do you, for the sake of the kingdom, do you want to swing a big bat or a smaller bat? He he said it kind of like that. I thought, well, I mean, that makes sense. And I'm a, I'm a first child, Asian American, deferential to authority and so two godly men who invested in my life, who loved me and speak in that directly. I just went like, OK, <laughs> you know, this is if this is what you guys think. Well, I'll go for it then. Um, and then a close friend of Mark's at that point heard about what Mark had done in speaking into my life. And so he arranged for me to meet David Paulinson and spend a day with him. Um, and, I, you know, I, I recently tried to write that up and wrote about that first conversation with David, which I call it a trajectory changing conversation because I showed up basically with every question you can imagine of someone entering into the realm of counseling, potentially for training. And uh, you know, I had a generic hour given to me to sit with David and I asked him every question you can imagine. First time I saw the two trees model was David drawing it out on a piece of paper for me. Um at the end of that hour I I was squirming around knowing my time was up and a classic david he said you know i'm enjoying the conversation why don't you just stay and let's just keep talking and we talked all afternoon i mean i don't, I don't even know how long it was but we spent a long afternoon talking through everything i could ever imagine plus more and that's where my friendship began it's it, we struck up a friendship at that moment and had related to each other and corresponded and talked and built a friendship over the course of years then. Um, and he sweetly, you know, anytime he showed up in a town where I was at um, sought me out, he remembered my name, which I was shocked the first time. He, he even asked about a host if I was there and, and, and we just built a friendship and I'm appreciative of obviously his investment in my life at that key moment, um, because I then headed into a, a general MDiv. Um, uh, uh, I was just coming out, sorry, just coming out of a general MDiv. And I was looking to then do some kind of graduate work in counseling. I asked him, does CCF have a PhD? Cause I left an MD and he said they have plans for it, but they were waiting for one more person to come to join their faculty to have accreditation. But shortly after that, David's health tanked that's when he went into the season of pretty difficult suffering for a number of health issues he had over the course of the next few years. So they scrapped the idea. So I ended up at Southern again, which I was glad to in doing the PhD there um, and ended up doing my PhD in at Southern over the course of 2002 to 2007.
0: Yeah. And we actually overlapped at that point too. I was there. I remember you came in and spoke at a, we had a class at the time where uh, somebody from each department would come in and talk. It was almost like the Southern Baptist history and the history of the institution. And uh, I don't know if you remember that, but we, I came up to you afterwards and tried to set you straight on some things. So <laughs> I don't remember that, actually. <laughs> in my youthful arrogance, of course. So um, <clears throat> now I just have old arrogance. So there you go. But... I, I, yeah I remember I remember you being there so and then Sarah intersected with you at some point along the way there too How did you guys meet and how did, how did you end up getting married? Yeah
1: we, we met at CHBC when I came back to be Mark's personal assistant in 99 2000 2001 where um, she, I, I was introduced um, by one of the elders to the congregation as a, a a number of different things including having been a former med student and she was um, doing pre-medical studies at that point. So we, um, uh, she reached out to me a couple of weeks later and said, would you ever meet up and just help me think through this since you've already been to med school? So we did, I, I happened to be meeting up with an elder one block away from where she worked. So I reached out to her a couple of days before I said, I'll be in there in the neighborhood. Do you want to meet up and have the conversation you were attending? So we did. Um, and you know, cause I was, uh, I didn't graduate finally from the med school, but I still had privileges of getting in there and tours and knew a lot of people there. I offered to give her a tour. Um, so we met up a second time had breakfast and, uh, and gave her a tour of the med school. We kind of, people say that really technically was our first date. Cause, but you know, <laughs> I gave her a tour of the pathology lab, the gross anatomy lab. So I don't really want to qualify that as my first These date. These are
0: really great, you know, strategies for picking up dates. Like I know, <laughs> my goodness.
1: <laughs> but then, uh, uh, uh not too long after that, Kelsey Hoppy, the children's minister, came into my office. Uh, she sat down and chair in front of me and said, this is where, in reference to Sarah, she's cute, she's godly, and she's available. What are you going to do about it? And then she just basically walked out. Uh, uh, and Kelsey was in a Bible study with Sarah. She was just kind of prompting me. So I prayed about it and thought, she's right. So... I initiated lunch with her after a few times of meeting up with her. I felt the responsibility of being on staff and setting an example. So I did the infamous DTR with her where, uh, I, we met up and talked and she had a few, I asked her what she thinks and she had a few points to bring up. And then she said, what do you think? And I pulled out a 12 point outline with subpoints. points and worked through it. <laughs> my poor dear wife has had to put up with me ever since then.
0: And she, I mean, she still decided to say yes. So there you go. It did. <laughs> Twenty it years was, later, here despite we are. that,
1: we dated. I, I headed back to seminary, um, and uh, we dated long distance for a few months. And then uh, my dad sadly died of a heart attack, hmm. all in the middle of that. Um, and she says. It was watching me in leadership of my family in that period that helped her realize that she wanted to marry me. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't wish that on anyone, but yeah. obviously the Lord used those hard circumstances to bring us together. So we got engaged a year after we started dating, got married uh, about five months, six months later, and then she headed to me with me to seminary. And my dear wife, because we didn't have children, started MDiv studies and ended up getting her own, getting an MDiv while we were there.
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, getting, having the chance to hang out with Sarah was really sweet. She's, and she's brilliant too. So you guys have a, you guys are intellectual powerhouse family for sure. So, (laughs) and she's written some books, which um, we've, we've tried to highlight before too, but if you want to plug your wife's books, feel free.
1: Oh yeah. Well, I mean, I I might have the PhD, but my wife is the one who got accepted into all the schools that I got rejected from when I was applying to college. (laughs) Like, she's, she's, um, she's an Ivy league grad. She's a ton smarter than I am. She's quite sharp. Uh, so I'm excited that we're just at the stage where she is starting to begin to write. I mean, she's got two manuscripts, which I've just looked at that she's got to go in and revise and we're going to pitch to publishers soon. But, um, she wrote, um, for our youngest, uh, the God is better than trucks, Mm, um, because our youngest is infatuated with anything with four wheels and she wanted to establish at a very young age, a theology of God in the youngest of children. And of course, because that one did really well, they came back and said, can you do one for girls? Hmm. Uh, and so she did, God is better than princesses. Um, and then her burden for the youngest kids, because we have a lot of young kids in our church, is to do a gospel primer, a board book for the youngest of ages, which is yeah. what she just did.
0: That's cool. So. That's cool. Well, I, this conversation is fascinating and having a wonderful time and our time is getting away, but I do want to ask you some, some of the questions I ask our guests on getting to know you episodes are, <clears throat> what are some of the hardest things that you've faced in counseling or maybe one that stands out? Uh, and then kind of, what are the things that keep you going? What excites you and gives you joy in counseling ministry? Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the hardest thing I think by far is the suicidal cases. Mm. Uh,
1: just because it's it's literally life and death you know the couples who have conflict as bad as it could be they usually they'll make it to the next day just fine and maybe have another conflict but they'll make it to the next day
0: yeah
1: um handling suicide is literally life and death issues and you just don't want to be careless you just never know when you're going to get that call uh you just you you feel a different kind of burden. So mm-hmm. I, by the grace of God, I don't carry a lot home. I'm able to transition and love my family well and not carry the burdens of that day into our family life. But that's not the case with suicide. Um, suicidal ideation is, it's difficult to work through. It's complicated at times. Um, it's, it's hard because you never feel a, it's it's like having an exam, and until the semester's over, you always feel the burden of that exam coming up. It's like the same sense, like you always feel the burden of it hovering over you mm-hmm. as the person struggling with it. So I have that. That's the only category where it it consistently feels harder than everything else. Um, the thing that I love, uh, my goodness, I mean, what I love is not uh, when when you see somebody transform. Mm. And you're in the front row. Like I, uh, I mean, like one of my favorite situations of the last 15 years is a couple that they came in as a wreck. I mean, their marriage was in a really bad spot and I I met with them weekly for an entire year. Uh, And I, I, they, they were, they were desperate for help and they were humble and you can do a lot with that. Mm. And so I, I literally watch, their entire marriage transformed over the course of that first year. And what was delightful was that about a year and a half into this, so I adjusted the pace. And so it wasn't weekly. It was every other week for the second year, but halfway through that second year, they said to us, we just want to confess that we, we had been praying and hoping one day we could go to the mission field. And, you know, if they had said to that to me first week, I would have sadly probably <laughs> lapped it off. Yeah. Yeah. And I think they knew that too, that they were a wreck and there was no way that they could get there then. But it was, it was time. They, they had been building in a really good direction. And so they were coming to me saying, could God do something with us? Hmm. And I said to them, yes, but not yet. Hmm. I said, we, we, we got some more work to do. You know, later on the wife confessed, she was angry at me because they had been praying about this for years Um. But they were patient, and we kept working at it. And six months later, they said, what about now? And I said, yes, I, I think so. Hmm. But I don't want to rush. Uh, I think we need to take it slow, but I think we need to start having conversations. So we had conversations conversation with the elders. Uh, they ended up starting having a conversation with a particular missions agency. Interesting, the missions agency got very mad at me and the chairman of the elders, hmm. myself and the chairman of the elders, because as soon as they got a hold of this couple, they were ready to get them out on the field ASAP, and I had to say to them like, "No, no, no!" Like, well, I've been working with them for two years. Yeah. Like, you you need to realize that we got to take this slow, or else they'll implode on the field.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and we had we had a bit of a we had a bit of a sk- skerfuffle, if that's a word, w- with that missions board because they thought we were controlling by doing this. Mm. And, you know, I was ticked off as all daylight. Like, you know, you have not been in the trench with this couple for the last two years. You know how many hours I've labored to help see the Lord turn around their marriage and for you to rush them onto the field and see their marriage implode. I am not going to let you do that. Um, So I love the husband when the board then said to the, the husband, don't you feel controlled by those elders? And he said, no. I see their willingness to slow us down and make sure we're ready as an act of love.
0: Mm.
1: And I thought, man, that caught it. That, that captured it right there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, praise uh, the Lord. So, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's one of my favorite stories from 15 years of like, now they have been faithfully serving on the field for years. Mm. Um, and, you know, they come back and check in with me. Uh, pour, they had a, hit a hard season, and so they came back for a few months. And I poured into them, and then sent them right back out. Um, all right, but what a delight to see! Yeah. Not only I, I would have never written this storyline to see yeah. a couple in, in a, a wreck when they first came in. Now they have they have had years of fruitful ministry overseas.
0: Yeah, well, praise the Lord, uh, and what a testimony too to their just the Lord's work in their heart and may more and more missionaries have those kind of just church relationships where people are really pouring into them and they submit to it too. Well, brother, our time is, uh, is over and gone, but it was, it's been a real delight to have you on today and to get to know you a little bit more and for our audience to get to know you. So thanks so much for being with us on 1514 today. Glad to do it, Curtis. Always fun to be with you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of 1514. If you'd like to find out more about the Biblical Counseling Coalition, you can visit our website at biblicalcc.org. Special thanks to our podcast engineer, James Wills, who does all the post-production editing to make this podcast sound so wonderful. Also want to thank my assistant, Carrie Felton, for helping to arrange these interviews. And a special thanks to Andrew Riddell, who composed and recorded the music we use on 1514. I hope you have a wonderful day.